This episode of Tub Talk is brought to you by Avast Business. With over 435 million active users of Avast products, if you haven't already taken a look at what Avast Business is offering, now might be the time. Visit tubblog.co.uk forward slash Avast for all the links to the details. Right now, though, let's jump into our featured interview. Mike McAllowitz. Welcome to Tub Talk. Richard Tubb, it's amazing to be here. In your room, by the way, I feel a little bit awkward. <laughs> a little bit awkward. It's a little bit awkward. I mean, the bed's, the bed's nicely made, so there's no, uh, there's no flaws in this room. It's actually quite a beautiful room. It is. We are, we're in Santa Barbara for, frankly, MSP Live from yeah. uh, OVIC, where you are speaking tomorrow morning yes. as we record this. So um, I'm grateful for you uh, giving up a bit of your time. Oh, I'm excited. I, uh, I just walked back from the stage, so uh, they have a sound check they wanted me to do later this evening. Um, but selfishly, I want to go watch the college football finals for tonight. So uh, Clemson's taking on LSU, go Clemson. And uh, so I just reached out and I said, do you mind if I come a little bit earlier? Like, oh, if you can come right now, we can do it. So I had a sneak peek at the space. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I have, I've popped down. Yeah. Really well done. I mean, this venue is beautiful. The space is beautiful. I'm, I'm excited for tomorrow. Yeah, me too. So uh, for anybody listening to this, you're going to be listening to this in the future. The event's already going to have taken That's place. True. Clemson's already won. Clemson's already won. <laughs> Hopefully. So you're an international, for people who are not familiar with you, you're an international speaker. You are the author of multiple best-selling books, half a million... Uh, you know, book sales and yeah. going on. But we've got to address the elephant in the room before we even get started. Mike McCallowitz, am I pronouncing it right? <laughs> <laughs> you actually did. It's actually beautiful with the British accent. So I pronounce it McCallowitz. Yeah. Like you said, uh, the original pronunciation, I believe, was Mihilovich. It's from Eastern Europe, Ukrainian, you know, Russian area. Yeah. And what's the, the worst version of your name that you've heard? Just so far, it happened. Well, there's two. So one happened today. Okay. Because we're at the Ritz Carlton, they have to say your last name. This woman says, Hi, Mr. Michael Wiz. Like, I'm like, oh, like I have to go to the bathroom, Wiz. The, the worst, though, pronunciation, um, which was intentionally done, are my high school and college friends who call me Mike McAllishitz. That's, <laughs> that's the popular. And now, actually, everyone listening is going to call me McAllishitz. <laughs> they wouldn't dare. No, wouldn't no. Dare. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, uh, I live in. So most people know you for your books, The Pumpkin Plan and yeah. Profit First, are two of the most popular books in the, uh, in the managed service provider space. But before you became Mike, Mike the prolific author, I know you were uh, Mike the uh, IT business owner. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what led you up to today. So um, I, we, it was before we called ourselves MSPs, managed service providers, we were called network integrators or VARs, value-added resellers. After college, I couldn't get a job, so I started a, I couldn't get a good job. So I started my own business in computer systems. I had no idea what I was doing. What I found interesting, Richard, maybe you felt the same way, is that fear is an extraordinary motivator. <laughs> Definitely. Right? I mean, I was getting up at 5 a.m. and I was working until the next 5 a.m. because I had to make money. And we were based on netware systems. You know, and This is when netware 2.0, 2.2 was popular. Uh, we were still doing coax networks, token ring, yeah. mouse. I remember, like, you, God forbid you accidentally kicked the cable, the entire network would crash. Remember that? <laughs> so that was what I did. And I was in that business, I think, seven or eight years. So that was the advent of Ethernet came about then. Um, my final installations were over Cat 5. I think we're at Cat 7 now or Cat 6. I don't mm -hmm. even know. Um, switches. But we also made the shift from Netware to Microsoft's platforms. Um, I was able to sell that business to private equity. And um, then I started a second company, which was my, my big hit. I started a 
company in computer crime investigation, computer forensics specifically. And when I started that business, Enron broke six months later. And Enron, the defense uh, attorneys called us and said, we need uh, your services. So I got hired to do the Enron trial. And that put that little business on the map in a big way. We started getting celebrity cases and so forth. Sold that to a Fortune 500 two years into it, two and a half years into it. Um, but I think the real interesting part of my story, and I'll, I'll share this at the um, event tomorrow, is I became so cocky, because I'm like, oh my God, I started two companies, I sold two companies, I'm God's gift to entrepreneurship. I actually uh, started a third company call as an angel investor. It was a calamity, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no right to be in that space, and I started 10 businesses uh, simultaneously, and they all collapsed, and I wiped out all of the wealth I'd made. Wow. Yeah, so I lost everything. I lost my house, my, my possessions. The only thing I didn't lose was my family. And that was the restart for my life to, to realize that there's two ways to be successful as an entrepreneur. One is dumb luck, and it happens more than, than I thought. The second way is through really the mastery of the fundamental elements of financial management, sales, lead generation, all those components. And I started to investigate what really made a successful entrepreneur. I started to write about it for my own endeavors. And then I said, oh, this is my calling. I want to be an author that writes about entrepreneurship. So for the last now uh, 12 years, I've been a full-time author. I do still own some other businesses, but I'm a full-time author researching uh, entrepreneurship and trying to simplify it for myself and for my fellow entrepreneurs of the world. Yeah. And we appreciate it. Oh, I hope so. It, it's, a, it's a joy to do it, you know? And, and I'm on a mission to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. What I mean by this is, is there's this perception of yourself, Richard, of myself, of any entrepreneur, that the day you start your business, you're a multimillionaire and you barely even work. You, know, you sit at resorts in Santa Barbara all the time drinking Mai Tais. But the reality of entrepreneurship is a struggle, a financial struggle, the, this grind it out all the time, we, we often start to resent our business. That gap is what I call entrepreneurial poverty. And it's my, I really think it's my calling to close that gap for, for all of us. So I want to talk more about the books shortly because you've been wildly successful with them and the wisdom that you've shared has sort of impacted hundreds of thousands of people. But you, you just touched upon that period of your life where things weren't going so well. And I know lots of people listening to this either may be going through one of those periods or have experienced it. In hindsight, what are the things that you did to get you through that tough phase of your life and, and to the other side? Do you ever, you ever do journaling? Oh, every day. Oh, you do? Well, we're sat here and we can just see by the side of the bed there, um, we've got my five-minute journal that I fill in. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah, morning and night. So, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So I didn't do that. I didn't journal. Um, and when I started to struggle, I started to, to do this because I thought, It'd be nice to appreciate the difficult parts that I was going through. Um, to appreciate the good moments, I should say. So I started writing this journal, and it was just a highlight of all the good things. Like, I am even just say, I woke up today, and I feel good that I woke up at least, even though I had a miserable day. But then I met a friend of mine, and he goes, that's not how you journal. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, the idea of journaling is write down all your thoughts so you can vacate it from your mind. He goes, let the steam loose. So that changed my perspective. I no longer made my gratitude journal. It was just the journal. And I started to write down any feelings and emotions I had, which were some angry feelings. Because I, I, I was a millionaire in my early 30s, self-made, and I lost it all. I was angry at God. I was angry at myself. I, I, just spewing um, disappointment. And so I started to write that down. And what I found is when I wrote down about my frustrations, it would give me this moment to uh, 
to focus again. I mean, sometimes like it was a five seconds or five minutes, sometimes a few hours and sometimes a day or two where I had clarity again and I could, I could work on moving forward and not be stuck in that mire of anger and depression. And so that journal became this great outlet for me. And I, I journaled, I still do, but during that period daily for probably about a year or two. And I would say that was the biggest component that got me through the struggles was just writing about them. And uh, when those moments of clarity happened, I started marching forward. I'd do a little bit of work. And then when I started slipping into it, I'd hit the journal again. Makes sense. Yeah. Do you meditate? I, poorly. 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 Very poorly. Most people think they, they do. If they meditate, they think they do it poorly. I've tried it. You know, I found this other thing for me that works. You ever hear of singing bowls? You, it, I do. Yeah. My okay. friend Simon um, uh, showed me one the other day. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. They're extraordinary. So I was traveling through India. I was, I was doing a speaking tour. I started in Mumbai, but I went to... Uh, all these different, and I even went to Sri Lanka, went all over India. And one day I'm at this roadside place and this guy has this singing bowl. And I'm like, this is amazing. I'm like, I've never seen this. Like, why doesn't this exist in America? I'm like, I gotta buy one of these and start using it. Well, I came back to home to tell my friends. He's like, dude, you can get those at the local, you know, mall. Like they're everywhere. I was just totally ignorant of it. But how I use it is I'll wake up in the morning, I will do the same chant every time, go health, wealth, love, and happiness, and I'll start circling it, and I'll think of someone. So I'll actually think of you tomorrow when I do this. Health, wealth, love, and happiness, I'll be like, this is for Richard, and then for your wife, and then for your family, and then for the community that's here, and then for the community of Santa Barbara outside of this resort, and then our country, your country, our globe, our world. And I do that repeatedly. And while it's not meditation, and maybe you can consider it prayer, but what I see in my head is the act, there's actual vibrations, the sound vibrations. It really feels to me like my thoughts are going out. So that's become a great process for me to put wishes out uh, in the planet. And it's interesting. We're going off at a tangent here, forgive me, but I've done 70 odd of these interviews with people like yourself who are the uh, wildly successful by anybody's uh, sort of uh, measurements. Nearly everybody in business that I know does some degree of what other people might refer to as this woo-woo stuff, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Like meditation, journaling, or, um, yeah. you know, uh, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm becoming to really believe in it. I do meditation, have done for a number of years. Yeah. There's there's a common uh, commonality. I was trying to research entrepreneurs. It's true. It's true. You know, I, I put health, mind health as the number one priority and then physical health as a second priority because once those two are addressed then I think I can deliver my best to my clients and my work my family all that stuff the um, I started looking at the transcendental meditation yeah. have you looked into that? I've looked at it and, and not, not for me I'm quite comfortable I use the Headspace app which is a guided Very quite, heard meditation of that. Yeah, yeah. and Andy's a fellow Brit so I'm uh, <laughs> yeah you gotta support him <laughs> yeah so, so I'm looking into transcendental meditation I uh, I'm intrigued some some people like I think uh, Jerry, not Jerry, yeah, Jerry Seinfeld has used it and others and attribute a lot of his and other people their success to meditation in general. And this seems like a very simplified version. The one thing that turns me off though is it's very salesy. So I, I looked into it and now I get this constant stream like, hey, so hurt, yeah. yeah, so that that doesn't feel that it's it's consistent with the intention. So that's the one turnoff I have to. Yeah. So let's put the woo-woo yeah, to woo-woo. one side there, although it's very important to us both. Let's talk about you as an author. You're a prolific author. Um, I think, if I've got my record straight, five books in the last seven years? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I got, actually, I think it's five or six. So it's Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, Surge. So I've got Toilet Paper yeah. Entrepreneur 2013. Yeah. 
Pumpkin Plan, which is the first of your books I read. I think that's 2012. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it gets a little confusing already. So Toy Paper Entrepreneur actually came out in 2008. Uh, I re-released uh, it in 2013. Got it. Yeah. And then we've got Surge, 2016. Surge. Profit First, 2017. Yeah. Clockwork, 2018. Yeah, that's it then. And then yeah, and then when the next book is Fix This, which next, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. talk about um, briefly. Over half a million readers. Yeah. I mean, I've managed to write three books in 10 years. I'm in awe of you dudes like you're just churning out these not just churning out these books but churning out wildly high quality books Thank that you. make a massive difference to people what does your writing routine look like I was writing today yeah. so I took a train I was down in Irvine for a speaking event yesterday and uh, a friend of mine's like oh yeah my, my logistics person she goes uh, her name's Lisa she goes why don't you we can get you in an Uber you know it'll get you up there in an hour and a half and I said well maybe you can get me on a train she's like well it's a four hour ride I'm like that's perfect give me a four hour ride I find the best writing I do is either on airplanes or now trains because you don't know the person sitting next to you or there's not someone sitting next to you. You can put your headphones on. There's beautiful vestiges when you want to take a break. But now you have one thing in front of you and the internet access on all these things is sporadic and slow. So it's hard to go down one of those uh, rabbit holes of Facebook or whatever. So I was writing today. And then um, what I do is I'm working on right now, I think about 30 book concepts. I just actually had a new one, a new concept today. I call it the web. It's very ethereal right now, but whatever. So I'm working on these 30 concepts, and then at any certain point, one will start taking foothold because my readership will say, hey, I wish I knew the answer to this. And I'll look through the list and say, oh, I got, I've been already researching this out, and I'll start focusing and concentrating on it. If I can come up with a unique thesis, something that's different than that's already out there, then I'll pursue it. So I have a, uh, a new book, it's called Fix This Next, that's coming out next um, in April. And then I'm also working on a book right after it that my readership has pretty been approaching me about. Wow, yeah. so let's jump into some of the books. So I mentioned The Pumpkin Blime was the first time mm -hmm. I came across your work. Yeah. Um, part of that book there was the idea of sell it, do it, sell it, uh -huh. do it, again and again, chasing customers, working too many hours. Yeah. What would you say, having dealt with hundreds, if not thousands of business owners across the world, what are the most common mistakes that you see small business owners make that put them in a bad spot? What can yeah. they do to avoid that mistake? So this isn't my term. It's a, a colleague of mine named Barry Moltz. He's an author. And he wrote, or at least uh, shared this concept called the double helix trap. And if you look at the like a DNA strand in humanity, it kind of twines, like I know the listeners can't see this, but my hand's going back and forth, <laughs> like DNA, it's this twisting spot spiral, a helix. And what most businesses do, small business in particular, we go into a mode of either selling or doing. Selling is where we focus. We're trying to get business in. We're focused on prospects. So we go into this amplification of sales. But then when the sales actually convert to customers, now the owner reverts their attention to doing. So we go through this other slide back down. And now the concentration is doing because we have obligations. But sales are now dropping off. So we revert uh, or we, we redirect our attention to selling and that starts ramping up again. And so we start this double helix trap of either one's getting attention or the other. And the businesses can live on into perpetuity like this. The problem is the utilization of resources. Most small business owners say, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with work, but I can't afford to hire that first person or the next person. Therefore, I need to take on more work and you're stuck there forever. So what we need to do is, uh, is actually fragment ourselves. Look at the work we're doing that's driving the business forward in regards to delivering on our promises. And then fragment that into different segments, like uh, what are all the elements of work you do? You know, From the tech space, as a, as a computer guy, I used to run 
cable you know, in the ceilings. I was running coax back then. I used to uh, do the hardware integration. We used to install NICs. I don't even know if people know what NICs are anymore. Network interface cards? Yeah. yeah oh, you yeah, do. I remember, I remember NICs. Yeah, you remember NICs. But yeah. like, I remember I, termination and all that sort of stuff. That yeah, 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 stuff. yeah, terminating. And For I, our younger listeners, go and look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah, they won't so. know what iSupports <laughs> are. They won't know what a Mao is. They don't know all the good stuff. But like I was the person doing all that, and I said, well, what if I just hired someone just to do the cabling, a part-timer that could just do the cabling, alleviate that for me, but I didn't have the obligation of a full-time salary to this person. I was able to take a fraction of my work and give it to someone else. And that started to alleviate a little more time to, to concentrate that on sales while I did the other work. Then I fragmented myself again and I found like the installation of these uh, expansion cards, like Nick's were the popular one, but you just, you just have to install audio cards. You throw that in the ISIS slot and you have to put jumpers on because you have conflicts and all that shit. I hired someone to do just the integration and set up of the machines, I should say, at the workshop. And then when we bring them in, I was still doing the network setup and the servers. So I slowly took pieces of work off of me instead of trying to hire that first full-time employee. And that got me out of the double helix trap. And then the business really started to grow. And I concentrated my efforts on where I was really talented, which in that time was sales. And there's so many people going to be listening to this, I know, that are in that trap right yeah. now. So what you've just said, I think, is going to is, is going to strike an absolute chord to them, how you've done it and got out of that yeah. trap, so to speak. There's another technique, too, and it's really narrowing down your customer base. It's it's niche specialization. The funny thing is, you know, people listening, like, we've all heard of this. You've got to specialize in a niche. You've got to be great at something. But it sounds so risky. Like, what if that niche collapses? And what I tell people is niche specialization is not niche exclusivity, meaning we aren't mandated to pick a community to serve. I served hedge funds. When my business really grew, I selected hedge funds. Instead of saying I serve all business, I serve just hedge funds. And by concentrating on that, I would still take other opportunities if they presented themselves, but I concentrated my marketing and sales efforts in the hedge fund market. And when I did that, I started to build a reputation. And when you have a reputation, then you can build, or, uh, build a premium. So instead of my competition, you know, this is back in the, the uh, mid-90s, you know, my competition was charging, I don't know, 50 or 75 bucks an hour, which was a, a nice break-fix rate back then, and so was I. But when I started concentrating on hedge funds, I was able to charge 100 then 125 and then $200 an hour for break-fix because I could go to the hedge funds. I knew how to speak their language. I knew exactly what a um, ILS feed was and a Bloomberg system and those terminals and how to integrate them, where my general competition didn't. So I instantly had a transfer of trust. These hedge would start buying for me. I charge a premium because I knew that market better than anyone else. And that's when my business really exploded. I concentrated on the niche and I removed myself from doing everything and just myself just became a salesperson for that community. Absolutely makes sense. Now, one of your most popular books is Profit First. Yeah. I can remember that was released uh, 2017. Yeah, that sounds there. right. That sounds right. Because I can remember receiving text and WhatsApp and emails from and me? conversations. No, from oh, um, I'm like Richard, you got to get this, please. <laughs> I hadn't read it at the time, and, and my peers and friends, MSP owners, had read it, yeah. texting me, Oh, you've read this, right? No, no, I've not read it. But it made such a splash in the MSP industry it. because um, I know so many MSP owners, they work all hours, they look yeah. after their clients, they yeah. look after their staff, and then only after they've looked after everyone else do they look after themselves. So true. And your approach is different. So for people who have not read Profit First, first thing I would say, drop what you're doing now and go and grab it. <laughs> Thank you. But for, for anybody who's not familiar with it, how do you explain the concept behind Profit First? So I had this uh, epiphany, and tomorrow at the event, I'm, I'm going to be keynoting on this. 
there was a statistic released, I believe it was sanctioned by the SPA, the Small Business Administration in the U.S., but it was a global study. So this included all um, you know, first world countries, if you will, uh, businesses. And they identified that 83% of small businesses, and the SBA defines a small business by a company that does $25 million in annual revenue or less. So I'm absolutely a small business. I, you may be a small absolutely, business. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I suspect the vast majority of people in that room tomorrow Indeed. small business. The SBA said 83% of us are surviving check by check, which means if I don't get significant deposits in today, I don't have enough money to cover payroll next week, uh, let alone the rent. And to your point, Richard, I don't have any money to pay myself. Yeah. So there's this constant check to check survival. And what, what confounded me was how can so many business owners be able to start a business, attract prospects, care for those prospects, deliver the services, do all the marketing? I mean, there's hundreds of thousands or maybe hundreds, there's thousands of things we need to do. There's a lot of things we do and we do it all right. But the one reason, one, the primary reason we start our business, maybe just two, do something that brings us joy. Secondly, is to make a lot of money. Like everyone in that room, I suspect, wants to make a lot of money. And the primary reason we started our business is not coming true, is doesn't mean fulfilled. What's wrong with us, I thought? And that's when I had what I believe is, is my greatest epiphany was that we've been told that profit comes last. You have sales, you subtract your expenses, what's left over is left over is profit. So is in the UK, is it called turnover? That's right. Yeah. So turnover minus expenses equals profit. We are told that profit is the bottom line in the year end. That's our vernacular. The problem is, is human nature. When something comes last, that's equivalent to saying it's insignificant. Like I suspect, Richard, you never say, oh, I, I love my wife so much, that's why I put her last. <laughs> no, she's traveling with you. You love your wife, you put her first. You put your family first. Uh, your health, if we have a health scare, our health will be our first intention. You don't come out of a hospital saying, you know what, now I'm gonna put my health last. Last means the manana syndrome. And when we're told that profit's the bottom line or the year end, we are saying it's insignificant in the moment. And therefore we wait off until the end of the year and there's no profit there, like, oh, shucks, maybe next year. Yeah. That's the absurdity. So what I teach, the basic premise of profit first, instead of sales minus expenses equals profit, it's, it's sales minus profit equals expensive. How we do this in execution is every time you have a sale, immediately take a predetermined percentage of that money as profit, 5 10 15%. Hide it from your business. Then your business on a cash basis will tell you what's truly available to operate, and you must operate off of that. If you can't operate off that, that means you're incurring too many expenses or your margins aren't strong enough, which is usually it's a combination of the two. But if you do want to have a 15% profit or whatever you're allocating, you must work within the confines of this. Uh, effectively, profit first is the uh, pay yourself first system in our personal finances, simply applied to business. Absolutely. I remember speaking to, um, so I was brought up in Birmingham in uh, England, yeah. um, speaking to a, an old salter business owner, and he pulled me to one side and he gave me this advice. He was like, pay yourself first. You know, so it sounds Smart simple. Man. And again, I'd encourage, you know, that there's more to it than that. I'd encourage everybody to go and read the uh, the book. But I know this made a life-changing difference to a lot of MSP owners that I spoke to who were putting themselves last. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I, I, the biggest challenge I have with Profit First is that people will discount the simplicity for its effectiveness. They'll say, ah, oh, it's too easy to be true. And it's human nature to throw complexity at our struggles. So if we're not making money, we often say the solution is more complexity. We over-engineer the solution. But I have been blessed now, and this is a rough estimate, but we expect or estimate around 300,000 plus businesses now are actually actively doing profit first. And because I'm from the MSP or IT background, I've had the chance to speak with more IT 
people uh, than any other community, quite frankly. And uh, yeah, I get a lot of emails, calls. I actually get one probably 15 minutes or so on average now right. of a reader that says, I've implemented it and here's what I'm doing. And uh, it's it's the joy of life for me. It, it, it's so cool and it, it works, it works. Well, let, let's touch on that. So I've spoken to so many MSPs who have remarked how approachable you are. And I think it's probably clear Thanks. to anybody listening to this as well, you know, how much you enjoy talking about these topics. They've sent you questions, they tell me you've answered them. So what's your philosophy on managing reader feedback and how do you balance it against protecting your own time? How do you balance helping others with protecting your own time? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll show you the ultimate hack. So I, got, I have my phone right here in my hand and I'm just curious right now if... Um, when the last email came in, I'll, sh I'll show you because uh, it, it sounds almost here. Uh, well, it's still syncing up email, but there's an email that just came in. I drew the line of sand from Beth Lavin. It says, wow. uh, just started the Profit First system. Can't tell you how uh, excited I am and committed. Uh, thank you for teaching this. And she owns Bethany Lavin Photography. Um, and uh, more have also come in. What I do is I use an app called BombBomb. Well, I don't know where is my phone right now. But what I'll do is I'll go into this BombBomb app and I'll send a quick video response. Just sitting here, I'll be like, hey Beth, it's Mike Michalowicz. Saw you're doing profit first, I'm proud of you. You've got this. So I can do a response, a custom response to her in 20 seconds. And so say I get 15, one every 15 minutes. So for an hour times 24 hours, about 100 a day, that sounds about right. I can bang out responses to everyone within an hour or so. So that train ride, when I'm done writing, I'm doing a video response. People are blown away by it. Definitely. Yeah, because it's such a custom response. And there's no, there's no, I don't say, hey, you know, you should be reading my other books. I simply say congratulations on it. And, and I genuinely mean it. And I think that excites people. I, I try to encourage other authors to do the same thing. Um, but rarely does someone take me up on the suggestion for some reason. It's so remarkable, I would say, to do it. Now, I'm not saying it's difficult, but it is remarkable. Our mutual uh, friend, my close friend, uh, Nigel Moore. Yeah, I, uh, I just saw out, him outside. And I was uh, catching up with some MSPs in, uh, I was in Las Vegas for CES last week. And they said, Nigel was so good with video. He's so good. He sends me bonjour. And I can, you know, Nigel won't mind me sharing this. He was sort of petrified of doing that but after 200 odd hours yeah, you, yeah, of recording yeah. he's got good at it but it's so simple and whenever I get a, a response from somebody on Twitter as a as a video tweet as opposed to just a text tweet it's remarkable it's remarkable but why why are more people not doing it I think there's an intimidation factor so the first videos I did like the video like my nose is barely above the frame line like I had no idea what I was doing I was nervous but the beautiful thing about video is you can do it a hundred times over yeah it's only when you click on the send button do they get it? The, the other thing is, as I do, you, you find out little hacks. Like, I had no idea. Like, I used to hold a, a, a phone like this where my fingers are wrapped around the side. Yeah, landscape. Well, one, yes, yeah, so you need, and you want to do landscape and live videos. Well, someone told me this other grip, I call it the Vulcan grip. It's like this. It's a far better grip where your fingers are protruding out and you have two fingers in the back. It's much steadier. And you can get videos done maybe three or four seconds faster because it's just a more comfortable grip than the old kind of that I was slipping around. And those little things bring about this efficiency to do it even better. But I also have one other hack. I also have an assistant and her name is Janet. She monitors my email. Cause sometimes like tomorrow I'll be speaking, they'll be flying. 
I might not get videos done. And then I start to fall behind and now these videos accumulate and I can't do anymore. So she monitors every day and if there's not ones I responded to, she writes back and say, hey, this is Jenna. And she says her name. I think the integrity is very important. She goes, this is Jenna Mike's assistant. I monitor his email and he wants to get back to you, but I notice that he hasn't missed, he's missed it up to this point. So I want to share some resources that may help you and please do expect a video from Mike in the future. And then I catch up sometimes a week or two later. That is wonderful. Yeah. I love that approach. And I was on your website uh, a little while ago, and I think most people haven't spotted this, but right at the bottom of your website, <laughs> MikeMcCallowitz.com, we'll include that in the show notes, you've got two buttons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. You saw that. I'm Mike's biggest fan, yeah. and I can't stand this guy. Yeah. I won't spoil the surprise for visitors. I'd encourage people to go and check yeah. that out, click either button. But what's some of the feedback that you've had that's made you laugh out loud? Yeah, so people love the I can't stand this guy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I clicked it, and I love your work, because yeah, yeah. it's like a big, I was in Vegas last week, and there was a big button that said, don't press this button. Yeah, so you want you got to press, you it, got to press. To press it. Yeah. So of, of my homepage, besides the, uh, there's a call to action on there, of all the kind of ancillary things, that, that I can't stand this guy gets the most clicks. It's, it's things called goose eggs, and I, I discovered it in movies, Sometimes you watch a movie and the credits come by and everyone starts walking out of the theater, but right when all the credits are done, then they show you the behind the scenes or something, the real fun contents at the very end. And that um, endears the viewer to love the movie because they got something special for them. So I realized my website needs to have these endearing qualities. First, that's true to who I am. So it's it's all authentic stuff. I like to goof around and, and do crazy things at times. Um, but also to reward the viewer for going to the very end, if you will. So that's why it's at the very bottom. You have to scroll down. But there's other goose eggs buried throughout the site. The other thing you'll notice on my homepage is if you scroll around, the pictures will start changing. And so there's some, there's funny pictures and stuff like that. But there's also a behavioral reason behind that. I was reading a book called Influence. Have you read that book? Yeah. By Robert Cialdini or Cialdini? Yeah. In there he said that the more photographs that someone sees of a person, they start to be able to, not able to distinguish if they met the person in person or if they just saw lots of pictures. So the higher quantity of pictures you have and the more variable uh, variability in your pictures, the more the person has a greater trust for you. Because if we think we met someone in person, we have a greater trust. So more pictures actually translates to more trust. That's why often with celebrities, because we see celebrities in so many formats on TV and the magazines, we're like, oh, I, I feel like I know them, I love them. It's because we've seen them so many times. So we have an obligation, my phone's ringing there. We have an obligation, I think, as experts, as MSPs, whatever we do, show a variability of pictures. The, the one thing I think not to do is show that one favorite picture of yours from 20 years ago, like when you were in college, and all your, you're like, you looked amazing, and then someone meets you face to face, and you're like, oh, you don't look like your picture at all. That, that builds distrust. So I always have current pictures and a large variability of pictures. That makes a lot of sense. What a, what a great idea. Yeah, I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm gonna take that one and run with oh, it. Oh, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> Let's just jump in briefly and talk about your, one of the other books that made an impression on me, uh, Clockwork. Oh yeah. Um, I was speaking to an MSP, um, and I laughed out loud when I heard this because I knew exactly what they meant. They told me that when they read this book, they felt as though you had been spying on them. Because <laughs> uh, like the a pervert. <laughs> through the window. <laughs> they didn't say that. They just oh, okay, like, good. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about Clockwork and what led to that book. So um, when I define entrepreneurial poverty, as mentioned that, that I'm on this mission to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty, I think the first past um, vantage point people have of poverty is 
financial poverty, but there's other forms of poverty. And I think actually the most defeating version is time poverty, where we become entrapped in our business. There's emotional poverty and so forth. But this time poverty is what I set out to resolve. And what I found, uh, and maybe what this MSP could relate to, is that the business becomes so dependent upon us and we so dependent upon it that it is the only component of our life. There's a saying that many businesses are a parent-child relationship, right? You're the parent, you've spawned a business, you gave life to it, therefore it's your child. And if you grow it right, one day it'll return to you. Well, I think that parent-child analogy is a super bad one. I think it's more of conjoined twins, that you know we share critical organs with our business, um, that there's this codependency. And just like conjoined twins, the separation is a very surgical but very methodical process. You don't just tear things apart. You do it slowly and deliberately. So in Clockwork, I talk about the stages of separation where the entrepreneur needs to peel themselves out from the business and then ultimately achieve the ultimate asset test. And the ultimate asset test, as I define it, is what I call the four-week vacation. If you or any owner can leave their business for four consecutive weeks, be physically and digitally fully disconnected, and the business operates and even grows in your absence, you likely have achieved a business that can grow into perpetuity. So clockwork is this journey toward the four-week vacation. That's wonderful. And they, uh, we were talking about journaling earlier on. Yeah. I actually wrote in my uh, journal this morning, I've been away for, uh, for a couple of weeks uh, over here now, and um, I wrote in my journal how grateful I am for the team, Holly and Jenks, you know, keeping things uh, sort of ticking over and that. It's wonderful when you reach that stage where the business it is, right? needs you. And I wonder if Holly and Jenks feel empowered too. And I suspect because you're so grateful for them, I bet you they do feel empowered. One challenge I get from entrepreneurs, they say, if, if I go on this four-week vacation, my colleagues are going to think I'm just out there for the money. I'm just vacationing and I'm putting burden on them. And uh, I argue that's the worst positioning. What we need to do is go to our Hollies and say, I'm leaving the business because I want the business to have independence from me. I want to rely on you and, and our other colleagues here to step up and, and serve a greater role in the business. I don't want to be a business operator. I want to be a shareholder of a business, rendering opinion and direction, but not running the business. The only way we can do this is for Holly and all the other employees to step up and be rewarded accordingly. I do this with my team too. I have a small business. I have six colleagues. And so I met with everyone and said, I'm leaving. And, uh, and I told them why. And there was ex excitement and nervousness and anticipation. When I came back after my first four vacation, I returned. I said on the first day, what was it like in my absence? And on a scale of one to 10, how badly do you need me back in the business? 10, like Mike, drop everything. We have fires to put out. One, you never want to see me again. And they gave me a 1.2. <laughs> They're like, We're good. we got this. I couldn't believe it. They said it was so much fun yeah. and we felt empowered and we can make decisions and we didn't have to speak to you, but we respected you. Um, and um, the, the challenge that presented itself that I didn't expect then was simply my ego. They didn't intend to bruise my ego, but my ego got bruised. I'm like, oh, shucks. I started this business. I want to be needed. And so I had to get over this concept of, of my business needing me and move on from, I call it the superhero syndrome where yeah. us business owners can swoop in and fix everything, to move from a superhero to a supervisionary, someone that has a clear vision for the future of a business and can also serve the dreams of their employees in marching toward that vision. So I've tried to move on to that. Actually, just last week, so this is the beginning of the year, recording this, I think it's the 13th. On January 2nd, the day after New Year's, I took my team out for a full day retreat, two day retreat in the mountains. And we spent half the time talking about our individual dreams. 
uh, Jenna wants to get a new house and she actually even had a, a vision of what her house would be like. They want to build it, her and her husband. Another person, Amy, wants more time at home with her family because the kids are now in college and people are going their disparate ways and she's really a matriarchal type person. Well, I got very clear in everyone's vision and we have it now in our office on the main wall and it's a march of the business forward. I want the business to be a certain size and stuff, but that's my dream. It's marching toward that vision for the business, my dream, while also addressing and serving everyone else's dream on that journey. So it's a very empowering experience to align dreams. I love that. I love that. And, and to the point about, you know, the superhero sort of syndrome, I, I can remember stepping out of my MSP business years and years and years ago for the very first time coming to the States for a couple of weeks trip and uh, getting back and barely touching the business, barely touching the business, coming back. I was the first person in the office on a Monday morning. The phone rang. I picked it up yeah. and uh, I said, hey, you know, can I, can I help? Um, yeah, is Mick there? I said, oh, he's not, he's not in yet. Can I help? Yeah. I'd rather speak to Nick. This is a client oh, I brought on board. And then... Did anyone was you? Yeah. yeah. And then once I brought the ego down and realized, well, this is the situation I want to be in yeah. where I'm not needed, where yes. you know clients are asking for other people within the business. So wonderful. You know, that's the funny thing, Richard, about ego is to start a business, you must have a disproportionate amount of confidence in yourself and your ability. Ego. And you must speak eloquently and powerfully about what you can do even before you've done it, right? That's, but then the reverse happens right away is that you have to release that ego for the business to grow. So as a catalyst, you need it, but for growth, you need to remove it. It's kind of yeah, crazy. It is crazy, yeah. Um, let's talk about fix this. I've heard you quoted as saying the biggest problem most business owners have is they don't know what their the biggest big, problem yeah. is. They get stuck between sales, service delivery, staff. Is that what motivates you to yeah. write that book? Yeah, yeah. so the, the, the full title is Fix This Next. And the, the reason I put next in there is because there's a sense of urgency. Here's what I found so funny as I as considered my own entrepreneurial journey, but talking with many entrepreneurs and really investigating their businesses, sometimes I'll immerse myself in a business, spend days, sometimes weeks there, not continuously, but just investigating and watching, talking to employees. Most business owners address urgent and apparent issues. I come in with a plan for the day, but the second I start email, the, my agenda is dictated by my email. We are focusing on the urgent and apparent and ignoring the impactful. And the reason is we don't want to ignore the impactful, but we get satisfaction out of putting out fires because you actually have a sense of accomplishment. Impactful challenges often play out over time. So if I work on some kind of systems or process, I won't feel the immediate gain. It may be months, maybe even a year away before I start seeing a real gain. So therefore revert to these quick fixes, these dopamine releases like, oh, I got something fixed again. But it also quagmires our business into the sacked, this slow, uh, slow growing spot because we're always just putting out fires. We're firefighters. So fix this next is a process to remove us from concentrating on concentrating on these apparent and urgent issues and identifying the one thing that will really move us forward in a big way. I based upon Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Okay. So Maslow basically says there's a core human need for all of us that's physiological needs. Like you and I need to breathe air. We need uh, water, food, heat. Then once those base needs are satisfied in our bio, for our biology, the next level up will be safety needs. Like, you know, we want to be protected from harm. We want to have some financial stability. The next level up, uh, if I recall correctly, is belonging to a community, expression of love and, and community, and then esteem and self-actualization. 
you and I can be having like this conversation we're having now. This would be argued potentially as a self-actualization or a steam level. We're, we're talking about some philosophical things. So we're living at a, at a high level in Maslow's hierarchy. But if you and I were dining on something or drinking some tea and all of a sudden start choking on it, say I start choking, now I'm not having the conversation where I re biologically revert to getting this, this, this blockage out of my lungs. That's how Maslow works, that if our base need is not being satisfied or is at risk, we have to revert to it. Well, I discovered that businesses have a hierarchy of needs. I call it now the business hierarchy of needs that equates to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Every business needs at the base sales. Sales generates cash. It's the creation of cash. And if you have no cash coming into your business whatsoever, mm. you're in trouble. But once you have that, the next level up is profitability, which is the retention of cash that generates stability. Um, sadly, even at this base level in the business hierarchy of needs, many businesses get confused and business owners that are starved for profit are actually trying to generate more sales to get their way out of it. That's the equivalent of saying someone has a gun to your head, a safety need in Maslow's hierarchy, and you start breathing deeply hoping that will get that gun away from your head. Of course it won't. You know, reverting to a physiological need when you have a safety need is not the way to solve that. You need to block that gun away or plead for your life or take an action which will prevent harm. Yet, business owners, because we're not neurologically wired into our business, you know, we're neurologically wired into our own bodies, so we can respond very quickly to a blockage in our, our throat uh, and go to a physiological need because we're wired into ourselves, but we're not wired into our business. So I created this business hierarchy of needs as a compass, if you will, to help entrepreneurs navigate to what current big issue is the one that is the blockage for the business so that we can address that, remove that blockage, the impactful issue, and move forward. Yeah, makes absolute sense. And we'll include uh, in the show notes links to all your books, including Fix This Next. You are As awesome. well as all the TED Talks that you've done. So I want to talk, I, I've seen at least three of your TEDx TEDx, talks. yeah. TEDx, yeah, yeah. Uh, perhaps more. Um, you're also a guest lecturer at many uh, colleges across the USA. Yeah. We're now here at Santa Barbara. You're going to be keynoting um, OVIX Frankly MSP live uh, at tomorrow alongside Nigel Moore of the Tech Tribe. What do you enjoy most about presenting? I think what I enjoy most is after I present. So, so as a speaker, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. You know, I walk into a room, no one knows who I am. I don't expect to be known. Some people, you know, some people say niceties, but after you speak on stage, then people want to meet you, but not necessarily to have questions answered, but as much as to share their own story. And I love that. I see this common connection for all entrepreneurs, actually all of humanity. And uh, that's my favorite part. So after a speech, people come up to me and say, hey, I just want to tell you my story. And I, I savor that moment because I find this commonality in our journey, our common struggles with finances, our common struggle with, with navigating a personal life, marriage and so forth, while being married to a business, all those different elements. Also, I find the best stories there. So selfishly, I, I've met some remarkable people that I've included in my books just from speaking at these events. So that's my selfish uh, favorite component. I love it. And, and as I said, we'll include links in the show notes to all of the TED Talks because you are the man that I fully expect people to listen to this. And for the people I'm most jealous of, the people who have never heard of you before, because <laughs> they're just going to find this wealth of information and these show notes are going to be gobbled up, oh, TED awesome. Talks and all the rest of it are fantastic. Who do you consider your influences? Well, you know, I, I immediately go to my my parents. Um, 
I would argue for everyone, our parents are influencers, not necessarily positive influencers, sadly, but you know they're there from, for us from the day we're born and immediately start wiring us uh, either toward good or, or unfortunately sometimes toward a very negative outcome. Um, I've been very blessed to have extraordinary parents who were not entrepreneurial, but were willing to support it even though I don't think they even believed in it. So when I graduated college, my, I heard my father saying, you have to get one job for the rest of your life for a large corporation and serve them. And I, got, I made sense because that's what my father did. But I couldn't get the job. So I said, I think, I said, no, you know what? More than think, I'm going to do. I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And my parents were like, well, we'll, we'll support you in that. I, even I've sold, I remember, I, remember <laughs> I sold my second company for like millions of dollars. And I remember coming home to my parents and visiting and say, I, you know, I had the greatest day of my professional life and, and I made all this money and it was an extraordinary experience. And my father looks at me and goes, um, are you going to get like a, a real job now? <laughs> <laughs> and he just couldn't get it. I totally empathize. My parents are Same very, way? very similar. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. But I also understand that they, your parents and my parents didn't have the experience. But there was love throughout and there was support and there was acceptance. So they've been extraordinary influencers. You know, just these other influencers, I have on my wall, I call it the heavenly board. People's stories I've read, but people that are deceased from George Washington, a, a hero for the US, and, or for some people in the US, um, maybe not a British hero, <laughs> maybe more of a, a tyrannist, but I get it. I totally get it. Um, uh, Dale Carnegie, uh, who wrote a famous book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Michael Gerber, who's still alive, actually, who wrote E-Myth. Um, I have this this wall up of famous quotes from them. And when I'm con contemplating something, I look at each uh, of their busts and ask myself, what would they say in this situation? So I get some guidance from that. And um, I also have a, a board of advisors, if you will, in, in an eclectic space. Like, I want to be a great father. And I found this guy, his name's Chris. He's a great father. He's a horrible business person. So I don't, I don't meet with him to talk ever about business topics, but I do want to talk about fatherhood. I have another uh, gentleman named Silas, who is a, a religious man and a very strong spiritual connection. And I want to have that. And I learned that from him. But I don't know much about his experience in other areas, but I don't seek that out. I think the mistake I used to make was thinking there was one person who's our guide. I think it's a collection of many people. That is wonderful feedback. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Books. Obviously, you've written um, a load of books yourself, but what are the books you find yourself from other people, perhaps gifting to others quite often? Yeah, there's so many great books. Oh my God, I love to read. So uh, right now I'm reading Atlas Shrugged. I, I started that once. Have you read Atlas Shrugged? I have Ayn Rand? No. Okay, so it's a thick read. I think it's like 1,500 pages. So the book is like this. It's a fiction book, but it is about this... Uh, um, transportation company, the train industry, uh, and their journey. It's a, it's a fascinating read. It's a strong, dominant female figure. But back in the early 1900s, which was atypical to have a female entrepreneur, so fascinating book uh, and really gives you a good entrepreneurial perspective. Protective. Anything by Malcolm Gladwell, I think, is a must read. Mm -hmm. So I just got uh, How to Talk to Strangers or something like that. But uh, I love Blink. Um, even uh, his book that wasn't so popular, which is uh, What the Dog Saw, is it, it, great because it's, it's a compilation of famous books. David and Goliath, a fantastic book. Seth Godin, love his books, Purple Cow. Uh, Made to Stick, this is by Dan Heath and Chip Heath. That, that one a gift to many people. 
a, such a fantastic read. Uh, Michael Gerber's E-Myth is, is fundamental. It must be read. I love the behavioral books too, like Robert Cialdini's Influence. There's a lot of books out there. Uh, there's probably my favorite um, is, is an author named, uh, oh my God, uh, oh, I can picture it. I can, Roger Dooley. Oh my gosh, I couldn't, he's one of my favorite authors. And I can't believe I couldn't think of his name for a second. Roger Dooley wrote a book called Brainfluence, but he just released a new book called Friction. Holy cannoli is this book powerful. What it talks about is that the more friction exists in any kind of dialogue or transaction, the more reticent the customer is to continue on. So the more difficult it is to do something, the less likely we're to do it. And he shares modern anecdotes like how the taxi cab, where you had to hail down a taxi, you had to find the corner they're on and God forbid it's raining, how difficult it was to Uber, where you just click on your app and someone drives right up to you, removing the friction, why it became such a dominant force. And in the book, he talks about all these different elements we can look at in our own business, in our own lives to remove friction. Wow. So that's just a few books. I love reading. There's enough to be going on with right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about your next book then. Um, Tell us more about what's coming down the road, because you you mentioned April next year. Yeah, so April... Uh, I think 28th of, of 2020 of this 2020, year yeah. is fix this next. And that's the business heart group needs. I truly believe this is my, the most important work I've ever done um, because I think it will bring, I hope it brings clarity to entrepreneurs to know what to do next. It's not the solution to what to do. It's, 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 it helps you. It's a compass. You find what you need to do and then you can use other books, maybe mine, but there's these countless amazing books from other authors you can use to fix it or use a, a coach or consultant or just do it yourself. After that book, um, I'm meeting with my publisher. Uh, I'm thinking about writing, uh, I call it the disadvantage advantage. What I found is the weakness in businesses often are its greatest advantage when levered or spinned, spun the right way. Um, there's a, a story that came out of California, and this was an eye-opener. I, uh, it was University of... Was it Santa Barbara? U.S. Santa Barbara? Would that be ironic? I gotta look now. <laughs> but maybe here. There's a, a UC school, University of California school, uh, that has olive trees on their campus. If you've ever seen an olive tree, it looks like a prehistoric tree. It's all gnarled and twisted, but it, it, it's, it's the essence of historic beauty. It's very thick, noble trees. And they had these olive trees, and the campus was fabled for these beautiful trees. The problem is the olives, when they spawned would, would, or when they um, were ripe, would drop from the trees onto the pathways under them. Well, olives make olive oil, which is a very slippery liquid, causing accidents. Accidents, people would slip and their bikes would wipe out. So the school responded by using these power washers to wash it, which actually only spreads the oil further and made it more slippery. A major disadvantage. Then someone at the school, I don't know who the person was that thought of this, but it was genius, said, since we have olives, option one was cut down the trees. Option one is just carve out your weakness. A better one is make your advantage. What they did was they put nets under these trees during harvest time. They capture the olives, and now they make a world-famous <laughs> olive oil as university. The university is known, among other things, for its olive oil, and it attracts people. That's how you spin a disadvantage to an advantage. And there's countless stories out there like that. And there's a methodology to 
doing this. So that's what I'm working on, along with some other concepts too. And the book is due out April 2020. Fix this, fix this next. Yeah. It's April 28th, 2020. The Disadvantage Advantage is a future book that I'm in negotiations with my publisher right now. Got it. And yeah. uh, for anybody listening to this, I apologize for jumping backwards and forwards, but you've got no, such a catalog of amazing wisdom and books. That's and kind of you. All over I don't know if that's true. That's kind place. of you. Brother. It is absolutely true. It's fantastic. And as I said, um, I hope that anybody who's listening to this perhaps heard of you for the first time. This is just going to un- unleash a treasure trove of, uh, <laughs> uh, of things for people to go away and uh, check on. I'm conscious your time is very short. You're a very busy man at this Thanks. conference. And so just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the uh, influence you've had on me in my business oh, journey thank as well. You, Richard, really appreciate it. And what a treat to finally meet you in person. Even if it is in a bedroom. Yeah, here, right next to your bed. I've sent my wife packing so I can bring oh, a man you? into the bedroom and talk to him in private. So there we go. It's been a joy. You know, <laughs> many podcasts are over the wire and you don't get a chance to have eye contact or, or really spend time with a person. So thank you. I love this format. Cool, cool. Thanks really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. Hey folks, Richard here. Thanks for listening today. I know you've got a ton of options for who you listen to nowadays, so I really appreciate your support. Do you have any feedback on this episode? Ideas for future guests? Tweet me at Tublog using the hashtag TubTalk. I respond to every tweet and really appreciate your feedback. Richard here, and I wanted to give a really big shout out and to say a huge thank you to our friends at Avast for bringing this episode to you. In the face of increasingly complex threats targeting small and medium businesses, yesterday's methods are no longer enough. Cybersecurity must be quicker, smarter, and more reliable than ever before. Avast Business provide a range of powerful, easy-to-deploy security products and management platforms designed for IT solution providers and managed service providers. Avast Business offer a variety of cybersecurity products that are MSP friendly. You can choose from standalone antivirus products, managed antivirus products, cloud care for layered endpoint and network security services, backup and recovery, content filtering, email security, patch management, and a management console to easily deploy endpoint protection solutions to devices in your client networks. These solutions are all backed by the largest, most globally dispersed threat detection network in the world. If you've not checked out Avast's secure internet gateway, then I'd recommend taking a look at the video demo that Avast's Paul Fenwick and I recorded. It delivers a full security stack as a service that protects users wherever they go. With 30 years as a leading cybersecurity company and over 435 million active users of Avast products, if you haven't already taken a look at what Avast business is offering, now might be the time. Visit tublog.co.uk forward slash Avast for links to all the details. Hey team, this is Richard again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is MSP Insights. Now, every Tuesday, I share my thoughts on the business of IT with you, the managed service community. Thousands of managed service providers already subscribe to MSP Insights. It's easy to sign up, easy to cancel. MSP Insights is basically a short email from me every Tuesday without fail with advice on growing your IT business, plus cool resources I found, discovered, or started exploring that week. It's kind of like my diary 
library of cool things and often includes articles or books I've read, tools I've discovered and events I think you'd be interested in, often sent to me by my friends and Tub Talk podcast guests. So if that sounds fun, a short tiny bite of MSP goodness every Tuesday and you'd like to try it out, just go to go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. That's gogo.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.